For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been working through and we've been talking about this thing, walking with God, which is a term that many of us are familiar with, but it's not, it's not super intuitive what we mean when we talk about walking with God. It sounds sort of mysterious and mystical. But what we're saying is, is that this life is a journey. We move through life. And as you go on life's journey, you want to go with God on that journey. You want God to be a part of your everyday life, that we walk through life with God and that we follow him, that we bring him into every aspect of our lives. We don't compartmentalize it and just have him in certain sections where those are the God parts, but that we choose to live and walk with God, letting him into your life, letting him fulfill your purpose, that as we understand human nature from the biblical perspective, what we see is, is that we were created for the purpose of having a relationship with God and each other. That's why we're made. That's why we're here. We cannot feel full. We cannot be fulfilled in the long term, in the true sense, unless we are relating to God and relating to others because that's what we're made for. And so how do we let God into our life? How do we walk with God? How do we uh, let him work in our lives to help us grow? And so Paul's been talking about this. He's been focused in talking about so many of the details of this in such an important way. And he's defined it in chapter 7. We were talking a lot about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And he's using these terms. The flesh is just our natural bodies. It's who we are apart from God. It's not, not the, the non-spiritual part of who we are. And that that is in opposition to the spiritual part, that our bodies have appetites and they have desires and they drive us to do things. And those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but that we are more than the sum of our parts, that we are more than our appetites, that we are not just animals who live in an environment and react to stimuli, that there's something eternal about us and that God wants us to use our lives and our bodies to glorify him and so that puts the flesh and the spirit at odds with one another. And Paul describes it in terms of we know what's right, we, we desire what's good and right, but we find that we're not able to do it. And we have, how we have these experiences again and again and again where we are not the people that we would like to be. We see the qualities in other people. We see them do things in ways that we think, I wish I could be like that. And we try, and yet we can't. Why can't we do what it is that we want to do? We strive for good, but find that we keep doing all kinds of evil. And so that's where Romans 7 takes us to where Paul says, we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? It brings us to an end of self. And the insight that the Bible has on this into our lives is extraordinary because I can stand up here with confidence knowing that every one of you here, whether you're a Christian or not, the fact that you're a human being means that you know and you have experienced this struggle that we're talking about. Now, as Paul moves forward, he bases his argument on the idea that Christ's death on the cross, it both pays the penalty for sin, Jesus died so that we could be reconciled to God. God is just. He demands 
that evil be punished. You and me, we're evil. So we deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. And Jesus died so that he could take that wrath. And we could be reconciled to God. We could be reconnected with God because of his sacrifice. That's paying for the penalty of sin. But also that we walk with God. We can grow with God. And it's Jesus' death on the cross that makes that possible as well. And that's a little less straightforward. We think about that. We think, how does Jesus dying on the cross make me be a better person? How do I understand that? We don't change on our own power. We're broken, right? We can't. We want to, and we try, and we fail. We need God's power if we're going to really have real, meaningful change and growth in our lives. So Paul picks up right there, chapter 8, verse 11, and he says this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And what's interesting about this is he's connecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power used to resurrect Jesus Christ with the power that God will use to give you spiritual life. And that's a very interesting way of beginning to frame this whole question. God's power to change you is demonstrated through Jesus' resurrection and new life. If we've come to an end of ourselves, Romans 7, and we've realized we are broken, we've accepted that we are powerless, that we cannot change ourselves, and we do that by dashing ourselves against the rocks of self-effort. We do that by willing ourselves and making resolutions and again and again and again saying, this time is going to be different. I am going to change. And when we finally grow weary of that, when we grow tired of those kinds of vows and realize how broken we are, we come to that place where we realize we need help from God and we find God there ready, willing, and excited to help us. He wants to move into our lives because now we're at a place where real change is possible because the power is not going to come from us. We weren't designed to work that way. We were designed to be conduits of his power. And he says, what you're missing is the power of my spirit, the Holy Spirit moving into your life to enable you to change. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to go on and he's going to describe three ways the Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us to change. The first way we already, we, we already read. He says that it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that's at work in you. What he's saying is he's pointing to the efficacy of God's Holy Spirit, the power to affect change of God's spirit. And he's saying, look, you might think that you're a lost cause. You might think that you've been set in your ways for a long time. You've been trying to change yourself for a long time. And you have so much baggage. You have so much going on. You have so much damage in your life. It's too late for you. And God's answer to that is, the power I'm going to bring into your life is the same power that reverses death. 
The things, the forces that God brings to bear at work in you are that powerful. That's the same spirit that's at work in you. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That what God wants to do is he wants to come into your life and he wants to make you a more loving person. He wants to make you a more disciplined person. He wants you to be more kind. He wants you to be more patient. He wants you to be more merciful. And he doesn't expect you to do it by the determination of your own will. He wants you to do it in a relationship with him as he provides the means and the power to do it. Well, the implications of this are fantastic. It means that none of us are beyond God's reach. That's one of the major lies that we buy into as we think about, as we sort of count the cost. We say, do I really want to walk with God? And the enemies of God come in immediately with an accusation. And that accusation is, it's too late for you. It's too late. You are too set in your ways. You are too broken. You have too much baggage. But with Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as damaged goods. He is the author and creator of the universe. He speaks the universe into existence. He says, let there be light, and the big bang happens. You are not so powerful, so broken, so destroyed, so far gone, that God can't fix you. You're a relatively simple problem in the larger scheme of the things that he needs to do. As much as we are hurt and as stuck as we feel, these are not difficult things. God is not going to strain and say, oh, you're a big one. I'm going to have to really, you know, God has limitless power to work as demonstrated by his raising Jesus from the dead. The other implication is, If I'm not walking, if I'm not growing, and if I'm not changing, it's not God's fault. It's not as though he was like, well, you know, sometimes, you know, you just can't win, and I just don't have enough power for you. That never happens. If we're not walking, if we're not growing, if we're not changing, it's because in some way, we are refusing to connect with the provision of God and the power of God into our lives. We can't blame him. Philippians 1.6 says this, For I am confident of, of, the very th- of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We can be confident that when we engage in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we will begin a process that God is fully and unconditionally committed to. God will not quit. He will not give up. He will not get discouraged. And he will not back down from helping you and being involved in your life. You can push him away. You can refuse to listen, to be guided by him. But you cannot move him away from you and you cannot force him to stop speaking. He is committed to you. And these are the kinds of lies that we're tempted to believe. Things like we can't change. Things like God doesn't care about us. You know, if God is so loving, then why has he let me suffer in this way? Why did God make me this way? If he were so powerful, couldn't he just in the twinkling of an eye change me and then I wouldn't have these problems? These are the kinds of attacks that we want to mount against God. 
We want to believe that we are too far gone. You don't know, Ryan. You don't know the way I was raised, the way my parents treated me. You don't know the people who hurt me, the ways I was violated and betrayed. You don't know how hard it's been and how hard I've had to work to build the defenses to protect myself to even survive to this point of life. You don't know what baggage I have. And you're right, I don't. But God does. And he's not challenged by that. He's not dissuaded as though you're such a a, a Gordian knot that he can't figure you out. He can. And he wants to. We think that God lacks the power or maybe just God lacks the desire. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's built all this and gone off somewhere else or maybe it's just where you're concerned Uh, God isn't all that interested because he's disgusted with you. He's fed up and he thinks you're gross. The, The work of Jesus Christ on the cross disproves all of those lies. The resurrection of Christ proves that none of that is true for all of us, but individually and specifically for you. You see how Paul is drawing this together This demonstration, what is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's a demonstration of God's power, his love, his commitment, and his desire to the human race. And that's why he points to it, because it's such a tangible example of how God works. God cares because he died for us while we were still his enemies, while we were still shaking our fists at him. He died. While they drove the nails into his arms, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While we were in the act of rebelling and hating and claiming to be our own God, saying, no one tells me what to do. I live my life for myself and I will not obey. I will be my God. God was climbing up onto the cross, taking the wrath that we deserve upon himself. Because he doesn't do what he does because we are who we are. He does what he does because of who he is. And he doesn't change. So he loves you. And he wants to be reconciled to you, even while you rebel. And the cross is proof of that. It's a demonstration, a powerful demonstration of that reality. If God's power includes reversing death, uh, he, can, he can deal with your problems too. You know, death from all that we can observe is the one thing that is surely irreversible, right? That we can't change. When you're dead three days, cold and buried, nothing can be done. And God says, except where I'm involved. I can even reverse that. So I can move into your life with the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead, and I can help you change what you're struggling with, the problems that you have, the baggage that you bring, the damage that you feel. None of that is outside of God's reach. Finally, we see that Jesus' resurrection is the seal of God's approval and the authenticity of Jesus's message itself. And this is really important because Jesus's message was very simple. His mission was very clear. He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
I am the doctor, and I have come to heal the sick. And so he spent his time looking for people that knew they were broken. This is why he hung out with tax, with tax collectors and prostitutes and drunkards. And he was criticized for it. But those are the people that know that they are broken and that they cannot change. Those are the ones who cry out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And those were the people that Jesus came towards, grabbed them in his arms and said, follow me. God loves you. He forgives you. And he wants a relationship with you. God is love. It's not about ritual. It's not about how much you give. It's not about your good works. It's about receiving love. And he told people, he would, he would make claims like that and then he would heal people. He would cause the blind to see. He would actively tell people, I forgive your sins, which only God can do. And he claimed to be God. Saying, before Abraham, I am. No one comes to the Father but through me. He made these extraordinarily, extraordinary claims about who God is. He fought against the religious establishment, the religious rulers, the people who were saying, it's all about what you do and what you earn. And he was such a threat to that establishment, they brought him up on some trumped up charges and they had him publicly executed through the method of crucifixion. Dead a spear thrust in his side, thrown into a grave, sealed shut for three days, and God raised him back to life for thousands and thousands to see. For weeks and weeks, he walked around demonstrating the power of God. And what it means is, is that only God could do that. Only the power of God could produce such an incredible miracle. And why would God do that unless Jesus truly did represent who he was. Do you see how it's a stamp of authenticity on everything that Jesus told us about God and what God wants in a relationship with us? The resurrection is proof of God's commitment to us and that God is a God of love and mercy who wants to move into the lives of broken people and heal them pretty cool way for him to begin talking about this subject in light of this very demonstrable way that God has communicated this power. He goes on in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if this, of the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And it seems like you read that through at the first reading and the wording's a little strange. It seems like there might be some kind of threat in there, right? Are you saying that if I live by the flesh, you'll kill me? Like, God, you're waiting to destroy me. And that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. We've already studied and looked at how what he's saying is when we live apart from our purpose, we destroy ourselves. We live a life of destruction, the economy of diminishing returns. Living according to our appetites is living, according to our tr living against our true nature of who we were created to be. And when we live like animals, we find that we are empty, unfulfilled, and that we go down into a downward spiral 
of self-destruction and misery, and God wants good things for us. So instead, he says, embrace the Holy Spirit. Embrace the power of God's Spirit. Ask God into your life and let the Spirit lead you, which is our second point. That the Spirit of God comes in and gives you guidance. He doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. If we want to walk with God, we need a guide. And he says the Holy Spirit is your helper. And it's a very personal, very intimate helper. Because he says this helper comes and takes up residence permanently in you. So this isn't a phone call, you know, every month to check in. This is a lifestyle, a commitment of intimacy and connectedness where those who belong to God are led by the Spirit of God. How does God's Spirit lead? How does God speak through the Spirit? And what does it look like to be led by the Spirit? Well, there's lots of ways that the Spirit works. One of the primary ways is through the Word of God, the Bible. As you receive Christ and the Spirit comes into your life, your relationship to the Bible will begin to change. Look at what 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14 says. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And I don't know if you had any experience with reading the Bible as a non-Christian, but this is an incredible description of exactly what that is like. I was not raised a Christian. I was not raised studying the Bible. And I came to a point in my life, I was 13, 14, and I was wondering, I was curious about spiritual things. There was something called the Bible that everybody was talking about. And I started reading it. And it sucked. It was terrible. I had, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. I was an insomniac as a kid. I would have a really hard time getting to sleep at night. I literally had a Bible by my nightstand. You, if you'd come into my bedroom, you might have thought I was a spiritual person because there was a Bible on my nightstand and it was well read. I read it every night because it zonked me out. I read the entire Bible as a non-believer through high school. Uh, you know, two or three pages at a time because I would fall asleep. But I read it. And you know what made sense to me was the stories. I knew, I understood the stories. I could follow a narrative, right? We're not saying that if you don't have the Bible, then you're stupid, right? So I knew the story of Adam and Eve and Samson. And I knew the story of David and Goliath. I, I knew those stories, and I saw them as sort of like Aesop's fables. You know, they, they have good moral lessons to them. But it was the stuff, and when it got to stuff like, consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. I was like, oh, that's clearly wrong. I don't buy that, you know. Who could live that way? Why would you live? If you live that way in this world, uh, people will just take advantage of you all the time until you have nothing. Turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. That's clearly not the way that we should live. Forgive those who violate you, who betray you. Be merciful. Those ideas, while they might seem sweet and, and, and kind and good in some ways, they don't seem like you can literally 
And it would be even be wise to live as though these things were actually true. They made no sense to me because spiritual things are spiritually appraised. So what happened later was I came to Christ based on having some questions answered and seeing some things in other people's lives where they could demonstrate to me that they had a a purpose and a fullness that I didn't have. I was willing to accept that I was a sinner. I didn't have a problem with that. But that God would offer me love and forgiveness unconditionally, that took a while to figure out, a while to understand. But then I come back to the Bible and I'm reading it, and I'm disagreeing with a lot of it still. I definitely did not accept all of the Bible when I became a Christian. I just accepted that I needed a Savior. And I'm reading, and now all of a sudden inside of me, there's a conversation. going. Is this true or is this not true? Why don't you put it into practice and see? Why don't you start to serve other people and see if that doesn't make you full? And then you go and you serve, and you let God use you, and the Spirit of God works through you into someone else's life, and it's really exciting. It's really fulfilling. And you're like, oh my God, it's true. I can't believe this. Have you ever had the experience? You're in a conversation with somebody, and you're talking about something. They got something going on in their life, and you're trying to figure out how to help them. You don't really know what you're doing. You're just groping your way in the dark, trying to, you know, I hear you. I want to help you. Yes, yes, that sounds terrible. And then you say something from the word, Or something comes out of you, and you're like, you hear it coming out, and you're like, this is good stuff. You know, where is this coming from? And then their eyes open, and they are like, wow, I needed to hear that. And you're just like, that's the Spirit of God right there. I don't even know where that, I needed that advice, right? And you just realize, God has just worked through his spirit, through me, and what a thrill, what an exciting, amazing thing it is. And then you go to your scriptures and it says, yep, that's what I designed you to do. That's what you're made for. That's why it's better to give than to receive. That's why it's better to consider the needs of others as more important than yourself is because I will meet your needs and use you in the lives of other people. And the spiritual The way that the Holy Spirit moves in conjunction with the faith of acting on those truths changes the Bible immensely. And it proves to you and it teaches you that the Bible has all the principles needed to guide us through the complicated issues of this life. Now understand, this is very important. I am not saying you can turn to any page of the Bible and find what you need to do right now for your life. There's a lot of nuanced, gray, complicated issues that we face that the Bible doesn't have the answer for every specific situation. What it does have are all the principles that we need for understanding good and evil and understanding what the will of God is as we understand the principles. And we find that the Spirit of God will guide us in our decision-making process if we let him through the Word of God. Right and wrong can be totally confusing, but the Spirit of God, working together with the Word of God, brings things into clarity. And so we have questions. Is it wrong to discipline my kids? I mean, you can go and you can hear the the, the debate. You know, our culture has all kinds of things. You know, is it wrong to tell a kid no, to give a kid a timeout, to spank a kid? What do you do? 
What's the best thing? And this is an important thing when you're a parent for the first time and you're like, what do I do? You feel like you're making decisions right now that could be irreversible and have unforeseen consequences on the most important person in your life. And the culture says all kinds of different things that contradict each other, you know? There are movements in our culture right now that say, well, if you ever tell your child no, that's child abuse. You're just like, oh my God. What are the principles in the word of God that can guide me where the spirit of God and the word of God can teach me and give me principles where I don't have to execute the same behavior every time, but through a relationship with God dependent on him, I can learn how to be a wise parent. That's what being led by the Holy Spirit is. How important should making money be is an important question. Our culture's got a lot to say about that. You know, is it okay to work enough hours and to not want to proceed far enough in your job that you would have to work so many hours that you couldn't have relationships, that you couldn't be connected with people, that you wouldn't be there for your spouse or for your children? Should both parents work? Should one parent stay at home? Well, that's a really important question. It's probably really dependent on a lot of different factors, the principles of which would be available in Scripture to work out those kinds of things through your relationship with God. Is it wrong to refuse to forgive people who really hurt me? It sure doesn't feel wrong. When somebody really hurts me, it feels like what I should do is hurt them. That's what I should do. That's what feels right. Is that right? Am I obligated to forgive them? What does it look like to forgive them? The Bible has the principles to help us work those things out. Can I disagree with somebody and still love and respect them? We're losing that in our culture. People are equating disagreement with intolerance, which is insane. It's an attempt to cut off any meaningful discourse about what truth is to where we can't even talk to each other about the things that matter most in this life. We are living in a culture where we are being trained to talk about and to relate about nothing. How difficult is it in your workplace to talk to somebody about something that really matters? To talk about parenting, to talk about your marriage, to talk about your faith, to talk about how you spend money. Those are all the things. We don't talk about those things in the professional workplace. Why? Because we are so immature, we can't disagree with each other about things that matter and get peaceably along with one another. The Bible will teach you how to love people that you vehemently disagree with. The principles are there, and it's important. What is the truth about human sexuality? Oh, our culture is so crazy on And God has the principles, and through his spirit and through his word, will guide us as singles and married people on understanding what is best, what is is the way to relate to one another that God created us for that will bring the most fulfillment and joy and purpose into our lives. The spirit of God and the word of God working together to give us guidance to help us understand the scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
You see, a believer with the Holy Spirit gets to the Bible and it is living and active. It doesn't change. Its meaning doesn't change, but the way it speaks to us does. I've been a Christian for almost 20 years now, and I've read certain passages hundreds, if not thousands of times, but I can still read them, and the Spirit will move and help me see new meaning and new understanding and deeper insights about myself and what it is that God wants to say to me right now that he never said in the first 999 times I read that verse. Because the Spirit makes it an interactive conversation where God moves in that way. The Spirit will guide us in prayer. Not only in talking to us as we pray, but in teaching us how to pray. And this will blow your mind. And then the Spirit will also pray for us. God himself will intercede for us and understand us when we don't have the words, when we don't know how to say what it is that's in us, the Spirit who is also in us does. It's an incredible picture. The Spirit speaks to us during prayer and communicates beyond words. Think about this, okay? The communication medium here that's being described is remarkable, right? Words are good. Words have value. Words have meaning. I'm not saying that words don't matter or that words are useless. Obviously, I have a lot of them right? Words matter. But they're also insufficient because we can say things and people can misunderstand us. Important things that happens in our marriages all the time. The biggest issue in our marriages is communication. Imagine if you could take your spirit, your personhood, your heart and what happens in you, and you could put it in your spouse, and then you could say, here's what it means when I say I love you, and then they would experience what you mean. They would be like, oh, you do love me. I believe you. I get it, right? Because it would be like a perfect communication medium. You could communicate with them as well as you communicate with yourself, which would, for some of us, that's not that good, right? <laughs> I don't even know what I'm thinking, right? Well, God, being God, said, well, that's exactly how I want to communicate with you. I'm going to take my spirit, and when you receive Christ, when you remove the, uh, the discord that's between us, the rebellion that's between us by letting Jesus pay for your sin, I will take my spirit and it will permanently dwell inside of you and we will relate that way. We will talk and you will know my thoughts and I will know your thoughts and we will communicate through the Holy Spirit that way. It's an incredible picture of God's commitment to being close to us. Romans 8, 26 through 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you pray and when you have things going on and you don't even know what to say, you don't even know how to say to God what's going on in your life right now, but you want to, the Spirit of God completes the connection and God knows and understands exactly what's in your heart and you are fully known and fully understood and accepted and loved anyway. (laughs) The Spirit also leads us through other people with the Spirit. Community is an essential part of letting the Holy Spirit work in our lives. 
You know, we were talking a minute ago about what a great thing it is to let the Spirit of God work through you and then someone else's eyes get big and they get it. It's also a great thing to be the person whose eyes get big and to have someone else speak into your life in a way that you just know, you know that was not them, that was the Lord using them in your life. And if we don't have real relationships with, another, with one another, if we don't take real time to spend time together getting into each other's lives, we deprive ourselves of that opportunity, of that connectedness that we're made for. Our relationships with each other are super important. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have to make time for one another. We live in a culture where we are more informationally connected to one another than any other time in human history by far. We have Facebook friends and we like things and we tweet things and we have status updates and we have Instagram and we have all these different ways of communicating it to one another, but none of them have real depth. We have more shallow relating happening on a higher degree and less and less real relationships. We put up these facades of this is who I want you to see who I am. This is what I want you to think about me because I want you to think that I'm successful. I want you to think I've got my life together because I want you to like me. But in putting up that facade, I make it impossible for you to know me. And then I wonder why I feel so alone. It's the 21st century American condition where we have far more superficial connections to one another and far fewer real relationships with one another. In some ways, what's significant about this meeting right here is not the teaching that's happening right now. It's what you do when it's over. The time that you spend, the things that you choose to relate to one another about here and hopefully not just here, but in your home groups or that you're making time, that you're having meals together, you're grabbing lunch with, with buddies, you're having phone conversations, and you're not talking about the playoffs. You're not talking about the weather. You're not talking about the latest episode of Star Wars. You're making time to talk about the things that really matter, that really make a difference in how close you are with others and creating opportunities for the Spirit of God to work through you in each other's lives. That is what's important. And that's what God wants to do. And that's why when we start, you know, well, I don't want to know if I want to be in a home group and I don't know, I'll, I'll come on Sunday morning, but I'll book out the door as soon as people, you know, as soon as it's over. You can do all that. And I mean, there's a certain value in it. But when you cut out the relational component, it all becomes academic. And a relationship with God is not academic. It's personal. So the second aspect of the spirit is a spirit of guidance. The camaraderie that we have in Christian fellowship with one another. We need to plead with others. This is something that stands very much against our culture. How what was the last time anyone came up to you and said, I need you, will you please speak the truth into my life? How many people have done that ever in your life? Why? 
It's what we fundamentally need. It's what the Bible describes that we should be willing to do for one another. How many conversations have you had where you went to somebody and said, will you please speak the truth into my life? You're like, well, that sounds like a world of hurt, right? What's a world of hurt is not having that, not having that objectivity, inviting real relating. If you see something in my life that is inconsistent with what it is that I want my life to be about, would you love me enough to share that with me? Would you love me enough to speak the truth even if I don't want to hear it? And we need to love others enough that we're willing to speak, that we're willing to let the Spirit of God use us to help other people along the path as they walk with God. The Spirit's guidance disproves so many of the lies that we see raised up against God. The world system says there is no truth. It's all relative. What you think is right for you is what I think is right for me. And that's the best that we can hope for. But the Spirit, along with the Word of God, moved together to show us what real truth is, to demonstrate truth, that there is something greater than myself, that God has spoken, and as the creator and owner of the universe, what he thinks right and wrong are, what he designed us for, and what he says our purpose is, is actually a lot more important than what I think, or than what the person next to me thinks. And if I put those truths, if I act out in faith, and I put them into action, I begin to realize how true they are. And I not only see the truth, but I begin to live the truth in a way that I can't help but want to share with others who are groping in the dark, trying to figure out for themselves, is there any meaning, is there any purpose to any of this? We say, well, the Bible's just a hokey ancient document written by men. You know, it belongs on the shelf with a lot of other religious texts. It's interesting. It has some historical, maybe some philosophical interest. This is the way that ancient man, silly ancient man used to think. But it doesn't really say anything about the human condition until, again, you put it into practice, until you allow the truth of the Word of God. Men were involved. God worked through men to direct them, to inspire them, to write things down because God wants to be known. And He has demonstrated His character, His nature, his reliability, his love, his righteousness, his justness, and his mercy through the pages of Scripture so that we could know him and receive the guidance that we need. It is far more than an ancient book written on men. It is the manual written by the architect for the care and creation of a human life. And it does contain the answers that we seek. We think prayer is a waste of time. Again, until the Spirit comes in and we sense as we pray that the Spirit of God has moved and spoken in a way that is undeniable in our lives. And what I'm talking about is very much experiential. I can't, I can't demonstrate it to you. You have to receive the Spirit of God by faith before you can have this kind of experience. I like to go on prayer walks in the woods. I like to go out and kind of talk to God. And 
It was, this was some time ago. I was having this conversation with God, and I, I was feeling like God is far away, and I can't hear him, and I just feel far. And I wasn't praying out loud. It was in my heart, but it was like I was yelling in my heart, you know? And it was like, God, you know, where are you? And in my heart, I didn't hear a voice. There were no clouds parting and beams of light. It was just here. This answer came, and it said, you don't need to yell. I live inside of you. Why do you think I'm in space? And I thought about it, and I was like, I was. I was like, God's in space somehow, like heaven's up there. You know, that whole thing. I was operating under that silly, unbiblical mindset that as though God, you know, was floating way out there in the cosmos somewhere, and my prayers had to have enough launch power to reach them. And he was like, I live inside of you, dude. I hear everything that you say. I am so close. And it was just like, I am a freaking idiot, you know? And it, it was so helpful just to have God stir that within you. And to have that experience, you, you, you come away from a conversation with God like that, and you're like, that's really creepy. That's really how real is it that God will move in our lives that way? It's powerful. It proves and stands against the lie that we don't need others because it uses us and it connects us and it proves and is perfectly consistent with the argument that God makes that the ultimate answer to the human condition is that we need to love God and each other because when we don't do that, we break. We fall apart. We get super weird and we become disconnected from one another. Yet, when we let the Spirit of God work through us in real relationships with other people, we know and we are energized and we have purpose and meaning and all these other things that the world says that we need become far less important than our relationships with God and with each other, proving again the truth of the way that God is and the, what he has given us as a demonstration of his goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. The third aspect of the spirit that God, that Paul wants us to know as we walk with the spirit, how do we let God change us? How does the spirit of God work in our lives? The third one is that it's a spirit of assurance that God wants you to know that you are loved, that you are secure, and nothing can snatch you from his hand. His love for you is not conditional. It is absolute. It is indestructible. And there is nothing, nothing that can change in your life. There is nothing that you can do after receiving him that will cause you, him to reject you because he cannot reject himself and he dwells inside of you now permanently. You are secure. 
You need to know that. And there are so many Christians that don't. There are so many religious organizations that want to manipulate people through fear. They want you to think that you need them, that you have something, and that if you don't keep coming back, and you don't keep coming and hearing these teachings, or if you don't put money in the hat, and you don't do the things that we say you can do or that you should do, that you may not, you might, we might actually end up in hell if you don't listen to us. And God trumps that by saying, I want you to know that you are saved. When you know, when the Spirit works in your life, when it speaks to you, it is proof that you belong to God. When the Spirit speaks through you into someone else's life, that is proof that you belong to God. I have people all the time say, you don't understand, I don't even know if I'm a believer. I did this horrible and terrible thing. And I'm like, yeah, Christians really shouldn't do stuff like that. And they're like, I know, see, I don't even think I'm a Christian. And I'm like, the fact that you're here, convicted by the Spirit of God for that behavior, proves that you are a Christian and that you are saved. If you didn't have that sense of conviction, that heavy feeling of this is wrong and it needs to change, we could debate it, we could discuss it. I wouldn't judge it even then. But you know that you are saved because the Spirit is speaking in your heart. And that is irreversible according to Scripture. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you've heard about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. You've heard that you can be offered a free gift of salvation through faith, unconditional love by God. Having also believed, meaning that you've accepted it, that you felt God knocking at the door of your heart, and you have opened that door and asked God in. Having done that, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see what he's saying? He's saying the the Holy Spirit is the proof of the authenticity of your faith. You know, in the ancient world, if a king wanted to send a letter, it would bear a lot of authority. It would bear a lot of weight. If you got a message from the king, you better do whatever that said, right? And so they needed a way to prove so that you would know this is actually from the king. Because, you know, if one of your friends wants to play a practical joke and, you know, writes a letter from the king, how would you know? So they would have a wax seal with an intricate pattern that would bear the authority of the king, and he would stamp that on the, on the seal. And the only way the letter could be opened would be to break that seal. And so if you received a letter with a broken seal, you would, you'd be like, mm, this, may, this doesn't bear authority. But if it had the seal of the king intact, it meant that it was authentic. And when you broke that seal and read, you were reading the will of the king. God says, as a believer... You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a pledge for your inheritance in eternity. You have won at the game of life. You are going to eternity with God, and that will not change. That cannot change because you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. The Spirit is our proof of our citizenship in God's kingdom. It's our passport. It's our birth certificate. 
And it's designed, it's intended to not leave us wondering about where I stand before God. God wants you to know that you are saved. And that proves the power and nature of God's grace. God doesn't want you living in fear. Remember what we just read. He said, this is don't return to a spirit of fear. God doesn't want you wondering, am I saved, am I not saved? God doesn't want you wondering, is he going to accept me or is he going to reject me? Perfect love casts out fear. God knows that fear is not a change catalyst. What I mean is, your fear will do nothing to change your life. It'll only make you more secretive. Fear doesn't motivate us to change. Love does. Love has the power to bring real change into our lives. So let's trump fear. Let's defeat death. Let's remove the question of judgment or wrath or punishment completely out of the way by having Jesus Christ pay for all of it. And now change is possible. We don't need church. We don't need ritual. We don't need giving in order to know we are saved. Those things can help, like we just talked about. They can help us grow. They can help us walk. But they have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is a personal decision of faith that you make between you and God. And God doesn't want us motivated by guilt. How do we know that? Because he removes all things that could make us feel guilty or that should make us feel guilty. If he thought guilt were a good change catalyst, he would try to make us feel guilty. But someone who's saying to you, I love you, I accept you, and I forgive you no matter what you do, is not using guilt as a weapon against you. It's not interested in that. It's counterproductive to that goal. And so this accusation we have against God in our hearts that he wants to use guilt somehow to shame me into doing what he wants me to do is absolutely trumped by the seal of the pledge of the assurance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God wants us to know that we are secure. That when we think about him, what is the language that he uses? The language he uses is Father. That's so interesting. You know, we don't all have great relationships with our moms and our dads. We have, you know, different, some of us are blessed with, with that. Some of us are not. But what God says is, look, if you want to understand our relationship, who you are to me, think about the perfect father. The father that is what every father should be. The father who accepts you and loves you no matter what you do. The father who will discipline you and kick your butt if you need it but never because he's angry at you, only because it's his job to teach you and help you grow. The father who will stand there and be there for you and love you, no matter what you do in your life. That is what God says. When you think of father, think of me. Because you are my child. You are adopted and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And you need have no fear when you are covered by the blood of my son. That security begins with a choice. A one-time choice. And some of you have been coming, and you've been sitting through Romans for some time now, and you hear the call of God in your life. You know he's knocking at your door, but you have not made the decision yet to open the door. And why? 
What's holding you back? What we need you to understand is this. We need you to understand that you don't have to accept the whole Bible in order to come to faith. I certainly didn't. I came, I believed that I was a sinner. I didn't have a problem with that. And that I needed forgiveness. And I understood finally that God was offering me forgiveness through Christ. And so I called out to God and I said, I believe that you're there. I believe that you're good and that you're loving and that I am evil and that I need a savior. Will you come into my life? I want to accept your forgiveness. And I became a Christian at that very moment. And then I dedicated myself to disproving everything about the Bible that I didn't like. Because I didn't want to be under the authority. I didn't like a lot of the things that the Bible said. And I pushed and I pulled and I didn't just create. I wanted to make arguments. And fortunately, I was surrounded by people that were a lot smarter than me who had a lot better arguments because they knew the word of God. And what changed as I bashed up against that was what changed was me. And I'm here with some knowledge and some sense of the Bible and wanting to share it with you because I've become convinced that it's true. But I didn't become convinced before I was a Christian. I became convinced as I have the Spirit of God guiding me and leading me and challenging me as I read the Word of God. That is the first and most important step that you can take is receiving Christ. Let's read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 one more time. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the very same message we've been talking about here this morning and all through this book, the gospel of your salvation, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That can happen right now. Don't wait don't put it off any longer. Open the door and let God into your life and let him work with you on your questions. Your questions are good. It's good to have questions. God doesn't want blind faith. He wants you to come to the place where you realize that you are imperfect, that you are a creature, not a creator, and you need him. That's all you need to take that next step and then have your questions. Insist, demand that your questions be answered. Why? Because God's the God of answers. And he will answer your questions. So if you hear the call of God now, don't put this off any longer. But, but fling open the door and invite him into your life. For the rest of us, we have to continue to let the work of the Holy Spirit move in our lives. We have to let it guide us. We have to make use of that power. You can hear God's Spirit at work. The Spirit is going to guide you as a believer, whether you want it to or not, but you still have this incredible power to tell God, no, I won't listen. I won't do. I won't respond. I won't act. I will do what I want to do. And God says, well, I paid for that. That's covered, but I have so much more for you. Your life could be better. You could be used in the lives of others if you would listen. You can try to grow and change under your own power. You can convince yourself that this just doesn't work. You just live your life and you, you follow this and you let God in, but it just doesn't work. 
or I'm too broken, or I'm too far gone, or I'm too set in my ways, or I'm too old to change. And those are just lies from the pit of hell. That the Holy Spirit is fully capable of bringing about real change in your life. And if you're a Christian and your spiritual life is drying up, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling that sense of, I, wanted, I thought I would be further along than this, and why am I still fighting these same battles, and why am I still dealing with these same ugly sins that I hate from years ago, it's time to understand that you are the one that is interfering with God's desire to help you. And it's time to put down your fight and own that you need to let God in. You are already a child of his, but you have been telling him no for too long. Going back to 8, 15, and 16, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoptions as sons, to which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. If your spiritual life has dried up and you are feeling stuck and you don't know how to move forward, what you need to do is remember how loved you are. Because that is the catalyst for change. If you are not moving forward with God, it is because you do not understand how much he loves you. You're not inspired. You're not moved by the power of his love in your life. And that is the entire point of what God has provided and the entire purpose for which we were built. We cannot change without knowing that we are loved, that we are accepted, and we are significant. We have to know that we are secure. Hebrews says, Jesus unashamedly calls us his brothers. That just rocks me every time I think about as good as Jesus was. You know, it's easy to feel like the black sheep of the family, like the weird one that you know, people put up with, but they, but they kind of apologize for. Like, that's who I would think, you know, that's the way I would think Jesus would look at us. You know, all the perfect people are hanging out in heaven, and he's like, oh, yeah. I love him, but, you know, he's one of those. And it says, Jesus unashamedly stands next to us, puts his arms around us, and says, this is my brother. That's how he sees our relationship. And we have to know that if we want to change. We have to know that we don't have to change. Change is not a requirement for love. We have to know that. If you don't want to change, if you want to just stand and stubbornly say, I am not going to change, I'm going to be this way forever, God's answer is, I paid for that. But you also should know that you get to change if you want to. It's hard. It requires a continuing lowering of the pride seeing ugly things about yourself and the way that you impact other people that you may not want to see. It requires a continual renewal in that place where you come and you say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? But it is a life that is always moving forward. God will work that change in you if you tell him yes. Let him in and let him move forward. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
He is committed. He's not going anywhere. And he is able to do that work. Thanks, God, for this study in Romans, for the, the progression of thought here, for how you bring us to an end of ourselves through all these brilliant ways, these mechanisms with the law and with our understanding of you, how you bring us to that point of, of the end of our rebellion where we see our helplessness and then how you are there just so willing and ready to move in as our father and welcome us back as a prodigal. Give us love to take up residence inside of us and give us the opportunity to, to serve and love others and to experience the joy of that um, in a tangible way. We just pray, God, that you'll help us to go out into the community from here uh, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, and share that love and that truth with those who don't know you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.